you're listening to the Aim to Win podcast. I'm Wade Thomas, and I believe that every one of you has a wealth of potential just waiting to come out. And I'm here to help you reach that potential. So now, here's the Aim to Win podcast. Welcome to the Aim to Win podcast. I'm Wade Thomas, and today I'm delighted to have Jim Salvucci on with me. And Jim's a PhD. His career spans over 30 years as a professor and a college administrator. His goal was always to help set higher education and its institutions on a more successful path. He guided leaders at every level to become their best selves and to cultivate the best in others by refocusing on the organization's mission. After seeing the increased need for this kind of specialized thinking and support in the business world, Jim moved into the corporate arena, where he offers his experience and commitment to leaders and emerging leaders in every field that values its mission. So welcome to the podcast, Jim. Hey, I appreciate it, Wade. Thanks for having me. And uh, so I always like to start out with the same question so that the audience knows who's talking at them. Um, and that is, tell your story. How'd you get to where you are and, uh, and where are you? Yeah. Um, well, I started out in the Philadelphia area. That's where I was born and raised, just outside of Philadelphia. Um, and uh, just had always been exposed to leadership, even at a young age, kind of had it thrust upon me. Um, even like I was 12 years old in Boy Scouts and ended up in like the top leadership position. I was way too young. Um, made a lot of mistakes along the way, and this just kept happening over and over again. Um, went to college at Bard College in, in uh, the Hudson Valley in upstate New York, which is about an hour from where I live now, uh, coincidentally. Um, and that was just transformative. That, that totally um, changed my outlook on the world. Um, and I realized that the kind of potential I had, uh, to succeed, did a number of things for a few years and then decided that I really, the thing I really wanted to do was be an English professor. So I went to grad school, Queens college, and then, um, to the university of Toronto for my doctorate and loved it. Um, loved, loved that. And I was teaching the whole time. I'd actually started teaching as an adjunct at LaGuardia community college in New York, uh, when I was at Queens college. And it was, uh, you know, just a fantastic experience being able to, to, to lead a bunch of, of young minds. Um, so when I finally landed a full-time position though, in a school outside of Baltimore, I decided, well, you know, I've always ended up in these leadership positions. I'm going to be a backbencher. Told myself that, promised myself that I'm never going to participate. I'm not just going to sit in the back like other people do and let the world pass me by. Yeah. I blew that within a year. Um, I was, we had a faculty governance system called faculty council. It was brand new. I was in the inaugural faculty council as a second year faculty member. <laughs> um, next thing I know, I'm, you know, the head of it and everything goes on from there. Um, so I just couldn't really escape that, that leadership bug. And I started really thinking about leadership. What it is to be a leader? I watched other leaders, watch what they did, um, what they didn't do, what they were good at, what they failed at. Um, I'm a big proponent of what I call the negative paradigm, which is, you know, it's important to learn from your mistakes, but you can also learn from other people's mistakes. You know, they create a model and their model's not working. Learn from it, you know, figure out what's wrong. And it's usually not the opposite of what they're doing. It's usually something a little more complex than that. So you need to think it through. Um, so I ended up, eventually they asked me to, to be a dean and a, a founding dean of a school. Uh, so I had to take a bunch of departments and put them together and found the School of Humanities and Social Sciences. I didn't have a model. Um, my mentorship was, I mean, I, I did all this without really any decent mentors. I'll just say that. Um, I, I, you know, I really had no idea what I was doing, just had to figure it out and keep everything running and, you know, the classes being taught and all that had to happen. Um, 
I started looking around my fellow deans and watch what they did and, and kind of imitate them for a while. And I realized I was just miserable. It wasn't working for me. It wasn't working for my people. And so I rethought what I was doing, just sort of backed up and I started rethinking and started doing a lot of reading, um, ran across some really uh, important books that were very influential to me and, um, started just taking it a, a different way in a different direction and tried to be more true to myself and who I was and live my values and, you know, have, you know, see how my values applied to my leadership and to my school. And that started working very well. Unfortunately, the school I was at was exceedingly dysfunctional and was getting worse and worse and worse. Um, I was beginning to lose my mind a little bit in that environment, trying to protect my people from the dysfunction. Um, and eventually I did leave there after about seven years as a dean. And I went to a school in the Midwest um, that was being led by a really fantastic president. Um, frankly, the only great boss I've ever had in my entire life. And this is in my 50s, by the way. Um, so I waited my like, till age 51 <laughs> to get a, a boss who was a true leader um, and a mentor, too. My really first and only mentor. Um, and uh but unfortunately he left after a year he 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 retired and uh so i moved on to another school and uh as you can imagine you know it looks like i'm school hopping at this point you know in the job market so end up taking the, the the first job i get grab and it wasn't it was not a great situation again i was working for another dysfunctional president um we could spend this entire time talking about the, um, <laughs> leadership dysfunction in higher ed i could i just cannot shut up about it it's really a disaster um, and the horrible things that happens and the things that happen to students. But, um, I, so I was there for a little while. It just was not working out. Um, I was trying to, to do things a different way. It was a school that had a less than 30% graduation rate and you weren't allowed to talk about it. Um, so I started trying to move the needle on that and the, the faculty were on board. Um, they really wanted change, but the upper administration did not. And that's what I kept finding out. Faculty wanted change. Now this is unheard of. Faculty usually don't want change. The faculty wanted to do the right thing. If you could show them how to do the right thing, they were pretty content with that. And they would they would do what had to be done, even at, at, at personal sacrifice. But it was presidents and other vice presidents like me who had no no interest in that. Um so at that point I was as a provost and it just you know, it just wasn't working. So I left. Um fortunately just before COVID. Um and my wife got a job in Newburgh, New York, and we moved up here. Um and I decided, you know, I, I applied for a few jobs in higher ed um COVID was making it really messy it was really hard um and i thought i, I, I thought you know I, I don't want i did a couple of interviews and it's just like i'm not really enjoying this i don't really want to be involved in this um anymore i'm really tired of the dysfunction um i can help make positive changes but nobody wants to so um i turned down an interview and decided to light out on my own and start a uh, a uh, consulting and, and coaching company and i coach leadership um, which is weird for me because I've, you know, aside from founding a school, I've never done anything entrepreneurial. I've never seen it done. Um, I don't come from a particularly entrepreneurial family. Um, and I just thought I would always be in a, in a career as an English professor. <laughs> that was my plan. So I'm way off track here in terms of that. Um, but I'm not going back. I mean, I really <laughs> love what I'm doing. And, you know, the reason I did that was because the, the one thing that I just kept thinking about that I really loved about being an administrator, and I did love being an administrator was that I loved working with younger faculty and staff and turning them into really great leaders and bringing them up. And so that's what I decided I want to do. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, 
kind of identify what your passion was through that morass of other things that are going on, right? Yeah. 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 Excellent. So you were 51 years old when you finally had, you know, a boss that actually performed as a leader. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> why is that? Why, why does it seem that so few bosses are actually leaders? And say more about what you mean by that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's a lot there. Um, I, you know, I can only theorize because I don't know them all. Um, but I, there's very few bosses who are leaders, as you said, and even fewer who are great leaders. Um, and there's a lot of leaders who aren't bosses, but we conflate those terms for reasons that just baffle me. Um, bosses tend to be more focused on management, um, which is different than leadership. First off, the reward systems usually around management, not leadership. Um, also they, you know, you tend when you, when you're put into a boss position, you're usually not trained in any decent way. Um, and the, the, what you do is you replicate what you've seen and what you've seen is usually pretty bad. So your bosses were bad. Maybe your current boss is bad. You're now a boss and you were thinking, oh, I'm going to do it differently. But as soon as you get in there, the pressure is incredible to go back to the old way. And when you're under pressure, you do tend to revert. Um, I used to teach composition in college and I used to see this all the time. I would spend a semester with a student and they would learn a new way of writing. But as soon as they were under any pressure, they would revert to the way they were when they walked into my classroom. Um, it's just human nature. Um, and so I think a lot of it is that, you know, you can throw the imposter syndrome in there, um, which is a big part of it. And you can also throw in the fact that a lot of so-called leadership trainings have nothing to do with leadership. I mean, I can't tell you how many leadership trainings I sat through. They talked about the budget. That's not leadership. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's management. You know? um, and, and so people, again, they conflate these terms and they don't really know what they're talking about. So, so, you know, it's not, it's not budgeting, right? That's not what, uh, the skill that a leader needs. What skills do you think, you know, are most impactful for leaders to, to gain? Yeah. I mean, they all, they all center around the same thing. I mean, you start with your values, right? Um, you, you've got some values and you stick by them and, um, you know, communication's a big part of it. Openness. Um, I'm a firm believer in radical transparency. You put yourself out there. You tell people what your weaknesses are. Um, people think that's, that is a weakness. How showing you're vulnerable. How's that a weakness? It takes guts. It's hard. Um, you know, a lot of the things we call soft skills, which is a term I hate, mm -hmm. um, are, are what we, uh, what you need to be a leader. Soft skills are the hardest skills, you know, try forming a team, you know, versus filling out a spreadsheet, yeah. you know, which is considered a hard skill try that um you know it's 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 a ridiculous reversal of terms but i'll tell you this um the three fundamentals the three things that you 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 have that are foundational um to all great leadership are first off human decency just live values be a good person first i don't mean you know work in a soup kitchen on the weekend and then you know rage like a nut during the week at your at your people i'm talking about be a decent human all the time and if you need a shortcut, here's a simple shortcut. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, another, another foundational element is, um, what I call taking your ego, stuffing it in a sack and throwing it in the river. Take, just take that ego and you got to stuff it down sometimes and you got to do it over and over. And the, the, here's the good news. Your ego won't drown. Trust me. It can swim. It can get out of that sack and it'll come right back. But there's few things as humbling as a soggy ego. If you know what I mean? Like yeah, by yeah. exercising that process, like taking your own ego and just saying, you know, I, I don't have to go there. 
um, it can make a m- world of difference in, in people's lives. And then um, finally, learn. It's all about learning. And you learn in a variety of ways. You can learn, you know, of course, through reading, through listening to leadership gurus, but you can also learn from other people, watching them, learn from yourself. Um, don't forget the negative paradigm. Learn from other people's mistakes. Um, and learning is, without that learning, you're not ever going to achieve any any great leadership. Yeah, I love it. But what's the hardest of those, do you think, for most leaders to get? <laughs> Probably this stuffing your ego. <laughs> um, I mean, what, once you start mastering the the human decency, the others kind of fall in line. But um, yes, not, stuffing your ego sucks really hard. And people... You know, the higher you get, the more pampered you get. This is what you see, at, you know, in, in a lot of a lot of industries, including higher ed. Um, a lot of college presidents, being a college president is an extremely difficult job, uh, incredibly grueling, time-consuming. But I will tell you this, you get a lot of perks, a lot of perks. You're the president of Rinky-Dink College in some state, and the next thing you know, you're having an audience with the governor. And people eat that up, and they're, boy, does it go to their head like like overnight. I've seen people turn so fast. Um, it's the ego thing. It's the biggest. It's the biggest problem, and it's the hardest thing to do. So, how does a leader go about changing that? By, by being aware of it. Um, by by empowering your people to say, "Stop it." Um, one of my proudest moments when I was a dean. I, I used to. I'm a. I hope I can say this on your podcast. But my one of my favorite leadership books is called "The No Asshole Rule" by Robert Sutton. Yeah. Great book, um, and his and his follow up book that good boss bad boss are it's an invaluable combination. Um, I used to say to my people, look, if I ever start acting like an asshole, because we read that book, I had stacks of it in my office. I would just hand it out. Um, I said, if I ever start acting like that, um, let me know. And one time, I sent an email, and I and it's just one of those. It was a tough day, and I just sent this email to my department chairs, and I said, as soon as I sent it, I thought mm, I should probably shouldn't send that. And I, ah, screw it, I don't care, and. The next day, one of my department chairs um, came up to me and said, you know, Jim, you told us to tell you. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, man, you're right. I was so proud of him. Um, it was so cool that he was able to do that. And then the next time we had a department chair meeting, I came in and I said, you know, I want to apologize. I shouldn't have sent that email. The irony was no one else had remembered it. Um, <laughs> but, um, but that was, you know, you got to do that stuff. You got to humble yourself. Um, and I'm not the most humble person, so I have to work at it. Yeah. You know, and so you kind of open the door to people telling you when you have the ego issue Mm -hmm. as a leader, it can be really hard. I would think to actually put it in a sack. Yeah. Do you see, do you see that in your work? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. People, people really, you know, um, here's the thing with my work. I work with the people who, who know they need me. Um, unfortunately I've set myself in a position where the vast majority of people who know, who need me most have no clue. And and because of the ego thing in part, um, you know, they just have no clue. And I, I kind of go for the low hanging fruit, the people who know they need me and, and, and are open to what I'm saying. So it's, it's not that bad. Um, but even when I was, when I was a provost and a dean and I would work with, with, um, young leaders, you know, I would teach them like this, this is just put your, put your ego out of the way. Let yourself just be you. Um, and I modeled it for them all the time. And that's important. Having a model is really important. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it it is, especially when it's somebody above you, because what you're doing then is you're saying, Hey, this is not just all right to do. 
but you know it, it's the it's the way to go oh yeah it's rewarded <laughs> right part of the reward system yeah 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 that's that's pretty powerful um what do you do in, in an organization if uh you know if it's your boss that needs to put his ego in a sack leave <laughs> <laughs> i've tried leave <laughs> um i mean it, there's managing up i it's something i was never good at of course some of the people i had to manage up to were uh, the stories i could tell you um but uh it's it it's it's really tough um because when you call somebody out um they resent it and i've done that I've, I've gone to my boss and said look there's a problem here and you need to address it and i'm coming out here and i'm putting myself out here and i know i'm really vulnerable right now and I'd appreciate you take that into consideration, but I'm not, I'm don't kill the messenger, but I'm trying to help you out here. And I paid a high, high price for that. Yeah. It's yeah. really hard. Yeah. You know, the, um, talk a little about the impact on an organization when you have the top levels, you know, that really struggle with, uh, with being leaders that they act more like bosses. Well, it, 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 it just runs the gamut, you know, and there's degrees, right? Um, but it runs the gamut. Um, everything from just this closed mindset. Um, I've seen the scarcity mindset take over with that, um, where the boss is trying to protect resources um, and and really doesn't know how to how to actually manage resources, which is part of leadership. Um, you know, dysfunction throughout, high turnover, people leaving. Higher ed is protected because faculty don't tend to leave; they tend to stay in their jobs. They try to stay for a career. And they'll suffer a lot of abuse um, before they leave. So it gives the illusion that there's stability. But you watch the staff, and the staff is just churning. Um, that's a that's a big one. And think about what that does um, in higher ed. Even student turnover. Um, that school with the the less than thirty percent graduation rate that that was there for a reason. There, there's I, I could tell you exactly what the mechanism was that caused that, and nobody wanted to deal with it. So denial of reality, um, lack of progress. Um, the, the, embracing the status quo in a, in a, a Python-like death grip, um, on and on. Um, yeah, it's, it's just bad. And, but yeah, you see it everywhere. It, yeah, it really stifles everything in the organization, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, what I found really interesting there is, you know, it flowed not just within the organization, but it really flew to the customers, right? Yeah. The students that were leaving. And, yeah. and so when you have this, you know, the egos at the top that are uncontained, it goes all the way to the customer base. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it, it really does. It affects everything. Now, I, I don't consider students customers. I consider them consumers. Sure. Um, and, I, and I would make the argument that the customer is the public. Hmm. Um, and that, that argument is not original to me. And I think any truly mission-driven organization should think like that. Um, you're, you, but the, uh, you know, your clients are not your customers. They're really your, your consumer. And um, it's a healthier way. But that's also one of the things that has really hampered higher ed since the 80s, and it's gotten much, much worse, is that that idea of customer, the student is a customer. Um, it really, it just, be, it, you know, the, they've adopted a corporate model and a structure that just doesn't adhere to that. Um, higher ed is messy, and it's messy for a reason, because it's really complicated, and it's constantly changing, and you need to be able to handle that. And what we have now are these sort of corporate structures where they're very heavy at the top, um, very rigid at the top, and they can't adapt to the changing needs of students and to the, the changing environment. Yeah. So, so talk a little about that in a broader sense, um, the idea of the mission-focused business. 
um, how, how do you get back to, how do you align your mission throughout everything you do? Cause a lot of times it just gets muddied up. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, um, you know, there's that, that the very silly story of, um, completely apocryphal story of when NASA was going for the, you know, doing the moonshot and, um, there's a bunch of reporters who go through NASA. They get to interview anybody they want. And so they get the full range of, you know, any, any, anybody they want to interview and they keep talking to people and, you know, they say, oh, here's what I do. Here's my job. But what I'm really doing is I'm putting a man on the moon and everybody answered that way. And then one of the reporters wanted to be a wise guy and he went to a janitor and says, Hey, what do you do here? And the guy says, I'm putting a man on the moon. You know, that kind of mission focus is actually ideal. You want people who, who see that mission. So what you need to do is you need to make sure everybody understands their place in the mission from top to bottom. Um, you know, one of the reasons I was able to, to be successful with faculty and get faculty to change was because I made sure they understood their role in the mission. Um, everyone wanted to support the mission of the institution, uh, but they, they, we rarely addressed it. So I used to start off every meeting talking about the mission, not just putting on a, on a slide, but talking about it, you know, bringing out some points, asking questions about it. And people would get excited by that. And it was also, it, it appealed to their value system. And they also started understanding the big picture. And I'll tell you this, faculty in colleges do not understand the big picture. Um, it is not what they do. They're, they they do narrow research. It's all small picture. Everything they do is is their training, their reward system. Everything is about being narrow focused. So again, to look at the big picture is profound. And once they do that, they can see where they fit in. They can see how what their decisions, how they affect the ability of the institution to move on the mission. And you can move forward. Now, if you can bring along the upper administration too, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's a whole different story, right? Yeah. Yeah. So excellent. So, so that's kind of the higher ed. Um, you know, how do you recommend a business do it? Same thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's really the same thing. Don't, don't treat the people at the bottom like cogs, mm -hmm. right? They're part, they're part of you delivering whatever mission you have, whatever your goal is as, as an organization, everyone's there to, to work on that. Treat them like that. Just because somebody has a part-time clerical job doesn't mean they're not important to the organization treat them like they're as important as anybody else and let them know where they fit in it's not hard but it, it does take time and it does take you know continuous renewal of that you can't just let do it once in you know some big annual meeting or something it's got to be top to bottom everyone agrees this is what we're doing this is why we're here and this is how we do it yeah you have to have an organizational habit around it right oh yeah yeah so what's, you know, for people that are listening to this, business owners and corporate leaders, you know, what's the biggest takeaway that they should work on, you know, today that they should start with? Think about your values. I keep using that word. Think about your values, where it fits in and how you operate with integrity. Hmm. Um, and when I say integrity, I always compare it to like, you know, think about physical integrity, the integrity of a table right? And table is solid, has to be solid, or if it doesn't, if it isn't, it's not, doesn't have any integrity. Um, it has to be whole, right? It has to have enough legs to hold it up. If it didn't have enough legs, it would fall over. It wouldn't be a good table, right? No integrity. And it also has to be reliable. I can put my coffee mug down and it's not going to slip through right to the floor. Same thing for human integrity or moral integrity, however you want to look at it. Um, 
it has to be solid. It has to be real, right? It has to be values-based. It has to be internalized. It has to be whole. You can't apply it here and not there. You can't act with integrity at home and not at the office. It's the same integrity. You can't operate when you're with it with with one integrity when your door is closed and one when it's open. It just doesn't work that way. Integrity has to be constant and throughout your life. And finally, it, you have to be reliable. People have to be able to rely on your integrity to be there. Um, you need to think about these things. You have to think about it and you have to reiterate it. You have to learn. You have to, and with learning, I mean, you study in any way you can, read, observe, listen. You have to put it into practice. You have to try it out. You have to evaluate what you've done. What And then from there, make any revisions you need to make. And then you need to close the loop, put them into place, and you're back to the learning. And it's a constant thing. That's the thing about leadership. It doesn't shut off. If you're going to be a great leader, you don't get an off switch. You don't. Yeah, that's right. Excellent. So I have one more question before I let you get out of here. And that is, how do people find you? Yeah. Um, well, I, you can find me at guidanceforgreatness.com. That's all one word, guidance for greatness. Um, and also if you want to email me directly, I'm at jim at jimsalvucci.com. Um, that's S-A-L-V-U-C-C-I. And then I also have a, um, podcast and blog that I do every week on Substack called, uh, uh on learning with greatness or, or leading with greatness. Sorry. Um, and it is on, it is, uh, jimsalvucci.substack.com. Excellent. We'll make sure we get all that linked up in the show notes for everybody. Yeah. And I uh, appreciate you taking the time with us today. Yeah, thank you, Wade. This has been great. Yeah. And, uh, and thank you for listening to the Aim to Win podcast. As always, like us, follow us, comment, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. <laughs>